the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. So, we are in Matthew 21, and as I said, now after this, we'll be, we'll be three quarters of the way through Matthew. And uh, now it begins, uh, now we kind of begin into passion time, right? Uh, the passion of the Christ is where he goes into Jerusalem, uh, he, he has direct um, attacks or, you know, confrontation with the, the leadership in Jerusalem. They don't like it. Uh, they put him on trial. They kill him. Uh, and then he rises again. So that's kind of where we're going. And uh, this is kind of the demarcation point of where that all begins. So uh, in rapid succession, we're going to see a lot of things happen. And uh, Jesus, where he's talked about for three times, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise on the third day. I mean, all that prediction that he said three times, it all starts now. And um, so uh, this, is, this is some exciting stuff. It's some fast-paced stuff. Uh, and uh, there's so much here. I'm in just incredible stuff here in Matthew. So um, I guess we'll just go ahead and go into Matthew chapter 21. We'll start at chapter or verse 1. And... Um, We will just see how this all unfolds. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. So here we have, um, basically, this is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Uh, On the church here, we celebrate this as Palm Sunday. Uh, It's the week before Easter Sunday. So in the church here, we celebrate Easter, and then we celebrate the Lord's Supper and the crucifixion, uh, and then the day on Saturday, and then on Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. We do this all in one week. Uh, So this is the point where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. And Jesus approaches Jerusalem. He asks his disciples to go get a colt. They do. They bring that to Jesus. They put Jesus on the colt. And Matthew, again, who wants to point out that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, uh, quotes from the Old Testament saying, See your daughter Zion. See your king comes to you riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, So Jesus comes in with the crowd 
and um, he's going straight in Jerusalem. He's not being bashful or shy. He's being bold, bold into Jerusalem to face the belly of the beast, and he's there. Uh, and the crowds, of course, are following him. Now, why are the crowds following Jesus? Well, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, he is doing all these amazing things. Um, and so he's developed quite a crowd. And they believe, the crowd is convinced that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to overthrow uh, the government there. Now, you have to remember that Jerusalem is the seat of the, of, of the Jewish Middle Eastern, you know, uh, kingdom, I guess you could say. And, and the guy who's in charge in Jerusalem is King Herod. In our world, we might say that Jerusalem is going into a state or maybe a region. And so the person that lives in that state would be the governor of that state, right? Um, so, but it'd be, this is a king, but th that's kind of what he is. He's in charge of the whole region of, of Jerusalem, Galilee, and this whole surrounding region. Now, we also know that Pilate is there. Pilate is a representative of the Roman Empire, but he happens to live in Jerusalem, and he probably has even a larger area that he's in charge of. Uh, I guess you could, you know, in the United States, we don't really do this. We put everything under the authority of the of the governor. So every state is in the person in charge of that state is the governor. And, you know, we're, we're even having questions now as to who overrides who. Is the governor in charge of the federal government? Can he override the federal government or can the federal government override the governor? And, you know, this this could be a battle even in COVID-19 if, if a governor wants to overstep or, or do things that the federal government says no. Uh, so Pilate is basically in Jerusalem as a representative of Rome and he would be like if we broke up the United States into regions, maybe six or eight regions, and had a vice president in each region. Uh, we don't have this system of government. Our vice president is basically there to step in if the, if the president's decapacitated. Um, but if you've ever done any work for the federal government, you'll find out that there are regional offices of the federal government. And uh, in each regional office, you have a director in that regional office. So at least from a uh, contracting uh, viewpoint and probably in a lot of other areas too. Uh, there, there are representatives of the federal government that exist in some of the large cities, right? San Francisco, Denver, um, uh, you know, Georgia. I mean, I don't know where, where all the, because it depends on what agency it is, but uh, there are representatives of the federal government in each state and they have some influence and power in each state. You know, they work closely with the governors. Anyway, that is enough said. Um, so Jesus is going into Jerusalem and he's gonna encounter the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are the religious leaders. They're also based in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a pretty powerful place if you think about it. The religious leaders are, are there. The local uh, governing agency is there. The, the federal, you know, Rome uh, is there. So there's a lot of power and influence into Jerusalem. So there's absolutely no question that Jesus is going right into the belly of the beast. Um, and again, the crowds are following him. And the reason why the crowds are following Jesus is because they don't like the necessarily being under Rome or being under King Herod. Uh, I'm not even sure they like necessarily the, fad, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they're, they're excited because they see Jesus is going in and shaking things up, right? He is, he's gonna mount an insurrection 
uh, and he, he's going to uh, just shake things up. Now, this happens, I guess I could take a little bit of time just talk about this. The, the way that the world has always worked, because we're sinful human beings, is that power and influence and wealth attract power and influence and wealth. I look at it as Newton's law of gravitation. And if you know Newton's law of gravitation, the force attracted between two bodies is the mass of one body and the mass of the other body and the distance between them, right? So that creates a force. So the earth has a force because it's a huge body, the earth, big earth, and little tiny humans sitting on the earth um, they're a little tiny body, but they're attracted to the earth because everything's attracted to earth. Anything comes within uh, a certain distance of the earth and it's coming into, the earth attracts it. And if it attracts it enough and it's an asteroid, it'll come and land on the earth because the larger it is, the bigger it is, the more powerful it is. And if you look at things like, uh, you know, celestial bodies going throughout the universe, the bigger they get, the more powerful they get until they get so powerful that light cannot escape this mass. I mean, that's how powerful it is. It gets so huge. And some people believe that that's how the universe is gonna actually come to an end, is that it will, you know, everything's attracted to the center of the universe until finally everything gets into the center of the universe and you just have one big blob of mass that has attracted everything. And the force of that mass would be so incredibly, um, incredibly you know, powerful that it could do all sorts of things. Um, so the reason why I bring that up is that uh, in every society, wealth and power and influence uh, starts to get attracted to certain people, like a king. Uh, and then they attract more, they have so much power and influence that they attract more wealth and more power, more influence. And what happens is you see this incredible uneven distribution that the people at the top have all the wealth, they have the vast majority of the wealth. Um, I've heard it said today in the United States that you know that there's the 2% or the 5% or the 10%, but there's so much wealth in the upper echelon and everybody else you know, is struggling. But if you have zero, so if you have zero mass in our little equation, right? If you have zero mass, if you have no wealth, if you have no education, if you have no influence, you have nothing, it is so hard to get attract. It's so hard to get traction. It's so hard to grab the first rung of the ladder, you know, and start to build wealth. Because if you have nothing, it, it is it is very 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 difficult to get into that first step of the ladder. And so that's why we here in the United States have uh, so many programs to help people get you know the first rung or the second rung of the ladder. But that's here in the United States. Across the world, there are many 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 places where if you have nothing. Uh, you will never, ever, ever in a million years rise up above nothing uh, because nobody's going to give you anything. We had uh, Greg Holtz from Crossing Cambodia. He was in Batabang, Cambodia, and uh, they have the, the, the street urchins or the street kids uh, in, in Cambodia. And even there, you know, their religion tells them that God made them street urchins because they were horrible people in an earlier life, right? They're never going to gain traction, ever. Um, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that everybody has value, so everybody should at least get to the front rung, right? To that first rung or to the second rung. Because once you get there, then you have a little bit of traction and you can start moving up in the world. Um, so what happens in, in 
every society that's ever been studied throughout the history of mankind is that wealth attracts wealth and all of a sudden all the wealth is distributed to the very top. The people at the very bottom have nothing. Even the middle class has very little. Uh, and then what do you get? At that point, uh, if, the, if the wealth has attracted all, this, all the front end, you know, at one area, then that's when you get a revolution. And a revolution is where you have all the, you know, the people that don't have wealth, but they have one thing, and that's that they band together, they can overthrow the government. You see this in Iran, you see this in Iraq, uh, you saw it in Romania with Ceausescu. I mean, whenever it gets so unevenly distributed that the people in the middle class and the lower class say, you know what, we're going to throw caution to the wind, we're going to overthrow the government because what do we have to lose? We are never, ever going to be at the top unless we create a revolution. Uh, and so, you know, the French, you know, the student revolution that's in Le Mis. <laughs> and so they, they create a revolution, you know, they throw away all the old structures and all of a sudden new structures develop and, uh, and it's the world starts over again. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, they had a thing called the Jubilee year. It was every seven years of seven. So on the 50th year, land, um, loans, uh, everything was kind of wiped out and everybody started over again on the Jubilee year. I mean, it was kind of a really fascinating way. Uh, I would love to do more. I, one of these days, I'm going to get more you know, time to do some research into the Jubilee year because I think that is probably one of the coolest ways. I mean, I don't know if they completely redistributed the wealth, but what it, what it did was it shook things up enough to where people at the, at the very, very bottom could start climbing up the rung and create a little bit of more equality in the society, right? So, um, because, I mean, you don't want, you theoretically, you don't want poor people, right? I mean, Jesus says we'll always have the poor. Uh, the poor will always be with us. So um, we know that they're always gonna be there because we live in a sinful world. Um, but there are times when we should shake things up a little bit just to see what happens because there could be some amazing things that could come out of that. The world uh, is, I mean, I'm not all for revolution. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm for peaceful revolution. In the United States is the ballot box, right? Um, but around the world, it, it may be health, healthy for a revolution to happen, uh, to see what happens when the people... Uh, you know, overthrow and everything starts over from zero again. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible time. It causes a tremendous loss of life. Uh, it, it shakes things up. It's horrible. Um, but the good side out of a revolution is that something better could potentially come out of it. And uh, people who are at the very, very, very low end of a society could end up climbing the rung again, right? Um, so anyway, that is why everybody is so excited about Jesus coming into Jerusalem because they see him uh, as the impetus for a revolution. And now he's put his foot, he's put a stake in the ground, he's crossed the line in the sand, and now he's going to Jerusalem. And now we're gonna start seeing things happen. So um, let's see, now let's go to what happens next is Jesus goes to the temple. Verse 12, Jesus enters the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? And Lord, you have called forth your praise. You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and he went out to the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the first thing he does is he overturns uh, the, the tables of the money changers in the temple courts. Now what happened is, and this happens in most cities, right? You have, um, you have the center of commerce. I guess in New York, it would be Wall Street. Uh, where I was growing up in Phoenix, it was downtown Phoenix. Uh, here in Tucson, it's the, it's the major downtown area of Tucson. And the closer you are to that area, uh, the more activity that happens. And so the land values in those areas go crazy. And the power and influence of that area. I mean, uh, if you go to downtown Tucson, you know, everybody who's anybody has a presence in downtown Tucson. So we can see that Jesus goes right down to the center of where everything is. This is the center of the religious government, right? It's the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. Uh, it's the center of the economic system of the government. It's the political center of the government. Herod's close by. Pilate's close by. It's all here. And he goes right into the belly of the beast and he overthrows all the tables. Uh, and if you've ever seen like Jesus Christ Superstar, he's just throwing the tables everywhere. This is, this is the center. He's, now, the reason he says he's overthrowing is because my temple should be a house of prayer, he said. Uh, you are turning God's temple into a commerce center. And uh, it was never meant to be that. I mean, the, it was, it was um, the temple was a place where people went to, uh, you know, exchange money for, for sacrifices, do sacrifices and all that sort of thing. But over time, the temple has become the center of commerce, the center of power, the center of influence. It's the center of everything. And what is the first thing that Jesus does? He goes into the center of it. Uh, and he starts destroying it. And now he has their attention, completely has their attention. Um, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are upset because the children are still crying Hosanna from when Jesus came in. Uh, Hosanna means Lord save us. So the people are shouting, Lord save us. And the little children are, you know, even after Jesus arrives, the little children are still around Jerusalem saying, Hosanna, loud Hosanna, the little children say. And uh, the main point of this whole thing, though, is that Jesus has now the attention of everybody. It's not just the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the, it's the economic center. Uh, it is the political center. It is the entire center of that region. Jesus now has all their attention, uh, and all eyes are focused on him. And it's amazing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't, uh, you know, he's not arrested yet, um, you know, he, he overturns these, these money tables. You know, he causes damage. You'd think somebody would arrest the guy. But in a revolution, the power is with the people. I mean, you've got, you've got the federal government and the state government. But in the revolution, the, if the people back the revolution, that's a very scary thing if you're in power. I mean, look at what happened to Ceausescu when they had that revolution in Romania in the 1980s. They went into his house they pulled him out and they executed him. Uh, and, you know, it was a, it's against the law to kill somebody, right? 
And yet, if you have enough people, if you have enough power and influence, if people gather together, they can create a revolution. And so the people are on the side of Jesus. They saw him come in, uh, and you have the you have the the political center and the economic center, and they're not going to touch Jesus because they just don't know what the people would do, and they're afraid of Jesus and they're afraid of the people, because they've been singing Hosanna, Lord save us. This is the battle cry of the revolution. So um, we will go then to uh, the. The next thing, which is uh, fascinating. Verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what is done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever is asked of you in prayer. So uh, Jesus wakes up in the morning. He's headed back into the city because he spent the night outside of the city. And uh, he's hungry. He wants a fig. And so he sees a fig tree. Um, and there's no figs on the fig tree. And so he curses the fig tree. Now, this is, this is a fascinating uh, part of the story of Jesus because it is not really like Jesus. Jesus, he's never really caused harm like this, right? Uh, when he calmed the storm, when he had the power to calm the storm and calm the sea, and do his amazing things, you know, it was all for good, right? Um, and yet he, he throws this curse down on the fig tree and the fig tree wilts. Um, and I love to see this as the cosmic battle between Satan and Jesus, right? Because um, when sin came into the world, God allowed Satan to prowl around the world and do as much harm as he can. And uh, so, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and maybe Satan, uh, you know, made this fig tree barren so that it would not bear fruit. Uh, and Jesus is just absolutely angry that there's no fig for him to eat. And so he curses the fig tree and it fall, you know, and it withers away. And um, so I like to see this as a, as a battle between, uh, you know, good and evil, <laughs> if you want to call it that. But... Um, it's interesting, the other Gospels, they see, uh, they, they have this story in there, but they point it back to something else. Uh, they, they see this as a metaphor or a parable, uh, or uh, I guess a parable of, of Jerusalem and of the temple. That, um, that the temple, that the Jewish faith was like a fig tree. And, and because God made them to be a blessing uh, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a blessing so that you may be a blessing to others. That was what God told Abraham way back in Genesis. And that was the whole purpose of the Jewish nation, was that they could show the blessings of God to the world around them. That's why God elevated them to the status that he did, so that they would be a blessing to the world around them. And by the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, they were not a blessing to the world around them. They were pretty much like the world around them. It was all about kingdoms and power and influence. And it wasn't necessarily about loving your neighbor and being a blessing. 
so Jesus then in the other gospels says, uh, curses the fig tree. It's like cursing Jerusalem because you're not bearing fruit, right? I, I made you to bear fruit into the world around you and you're not bearing fruit. And so you're now gonna be cursed. And uh, Matthew doesn't go there, but the other gospels do go there. Um, but uh, where Matthew says is if you have faith, right, you can, you can do this. And we've seen the faith of Jesus, right? Jesus walked on the water. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus calmed the storm. There was, Jesus turned bread and loaves of fish to feed 5,000 and 4,000. Jesus has power over creation. There's no question about it. Um, and then Matthew says that Jesus said, if your faith is strong enough, you can do these things also. Uh, and that's exactly what he told Peter when he was walking on the water, right? Have faith. And whenever things fell apart, Jesus always was quick to say, it's because your faith was not strong enough. Now, these are hard words for us because um, I mean, we, we wonder if our faith was strong enough, right? Could we move mountains? Could we walk on water? Could we here curse a fig tree and have it wither? Um, my, my father-in-law has been toying around this for, uh, for about the last year. Every time I see him or sometimes when we talk on the phone, uh, he's been, uh, actually wrote a white paper about this, but that did Adam and Eve before the fall have enough faith that they could also do these kinds of things, right? I mean, in a perfect state, is mankind able to, to have enough faith? And, and remember, their faith is perfect too at this point because God is right there. Could they move and change things? And uh, of course, this is a question we'll, we'll never know until we get into uh, in heaven with, with God forever and ask these questions, right? We don't have a perfect faith. So obviously these things, um, they escape us because our faith is not a perfect faith. But uh, Jesus did have a perfect faith. And so he was able to do these things. He was able to curse a fig tree and curse it he did. All right, so, um, but now he's done, uh, right? He's gone into Jerusalem with crowds following him. He's gone and overthrown the money changers. He's cursed the fig tree. Um, and now uh, he goes back to Jerusalem and he has another encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 23 Jesus entered the temple courts. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, Well, I'll, I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven, or was it of human origin? They discussed it among themselves, and they said to themselves, Well, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was the prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Wow. <laughs> so Jesus goes again right into the temple courts, and he's teaching, and the chief priests and the Pharisees come up to him and say, well, but what authority are you doing these things, right? Um, because you're forgiving sins, you're coming in, you're destroying the money changers, and who gives you the right to do this? And Jesus, very clever, he doesn't answer the question, he asks them a question. Okay, let's talk about John the Baptist. If you want to talk about authority, let's talk about John the Baptist. By what authority did he do what he did? 
I mean, did he have a special revelation from God? Did God give him the power to go out into the wilderness and do baptisms? Is that what he did? Because if that's what he did and you allowed him to be killed by the king, then you are at fault. Or was he on authority because he had such a crowd and teachers? You know, the the crowd was his authority. And he went out into the wilderness and he was, whatever was he was doing attracted large, large, large numbers of people and they came out and they were baptized by John. Is that his authority? Where does his authority lie? And of course, he put the, he put the Pharisees in a hard place, right? If they said, well, it was from God, well, then, then Jesus is like, well, why did you have him killed? And if he says, well, it was from the people, you know, why did, why did you have him killed? I mean, it put them on a spot as to, you know, why did why did they allow John to be killed? I think in some instances, John, Jesus is still upset at the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and Herod for having John killed and arrested because they saw him as a revolutionary, right? He, he was there kind of stirring up the crowd and he would shake things up. I mean, the larger that John gets, the more crowd he gets, the more the king and the leadership in Jerusalem are afraid of that crowd. So like, John had to be eliminated. Um, so this is the same type of thing. Who did you, where did John get this authority? And it's a question about, it's, it's really, you know, uh, it is such a, it's such a question that is so relevant to our world today. I mean, first of all, like look at authority here in the United States. Who has the ultimate authority to, let's say, open up a state? Is it the governor or is it the federal government, right? Or is it even a super federal government? Is it... Uh, you know, I, we don't have one, but United Nations or World Health Association or all these different things, you know, do they supersede governments? And when they do supersede governments and they overstep their bounds, then you see what you have in the United Kingdom where they have this Brexit, right? Because they don't want to be under that authority anymore. And so they had a revolution. Um, it was, again, it was a peaceful revolution. But uh, the question of authority is a big one because like, I am teaching you here today. By what authority do I have to teach you the word of God? Well, you might say, well, pastor, you've gone to seminary. You studied God's word. Uh, You know, we've called you to be in charge of our congregation. And so that's the authority by which you have to do the the word of God. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, In an organization who has authority. Well, you have project managers and you have, you know, you have vice presidents and presidents on, you know, we create an authority structure. What's interesting is that in that authority structure, uh, you might get people in authority that are really kind of way overstepping their bounds, right? Um, I know that uh, there's a thing called the Peter Principle. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It happens a lot in uh, large organizations. And the Peter Principle is you've got a person who's doing their job very, very poorly, horribly poorly, right? Uh, and you don't want to fire him because he's, you know, he's a nice guy. He gets along with people pretty well or a nice woman gets along with people pretty well. Uh, and so what you do is you, you elevate him to be in a leadership position. Well, let's see how this goes, right? You can't do your job, but maybe we'll you know, put you in a, a, a leadership position. And you know, he might, may or may not, you know, if he's a really good people person, maybe a leadership position is a better place for him. So I mean, that actually can happen. Um, but if he's not a people person or he doesn't have the skills, he can't learn leadership, now you've just elevated some to a leadership position who's not only good at the, bad at their job, but now that they're bad at their leader. So they keep getting promoted, right? Now, I, this doesn't happen everywhere. There's lots of good cover, companies with good middle management, upper level management leaders and stuff like that. But the Peter principle is one where you keep elevating. But, but it's a question of where does authority come from? 
uh, in Gore-Tex, uh, which makes a clothing and parable, uh, apparel and stuff like that, uh, they, for a while, I don't know if they still do this, but they would say, you have authority. If you're, a, if you're the lowest person in the organization, but you have an idea, uh, and you post the idea, and you call the meeting, and if people show up to that meeting, you now have authority over that meeting and over that concept and over that principle, right? You, you have just made yourself uh, authorized to do that. So in Gore-Tex, if you throw a meeting and nobody shows up, that's a bad sign. <laughs> but um, but if, you're, if you're a Gore-Tex and you have an idea and you want to make some change or you want to do something, you call a meeting and 10 people show up, now you have authority, right? Um, and the question of authority is just so fascinating. At the time of the Reformation, the most powerful person in the religious, you know, in the Western religion was the Pope. And the question is, by what authority does the Pope have the authority that he has? And of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church says, well, he's the Pope. He is, he is, God gave his authority to Peter, and then Peter gave his authority to successive bishops in Rome, and now that authority exists in this one person, um, which means he has total control. And so at the time of Luther and the Reformation, that whole entire authority rested in one person, which was called the Pope, uh, the, the Bishop of Rome. And uh, if, if there was any question religiously, uh, then everything come to that one person and he was in charge and he made the answer. And uh, at the time of Luther, they said he was infallible. Now that's a different question because uh, there's a difference between human structure that we say, okay, we're gonna place our authority under the Pope and we're gonna make him, you know, we willingly as the people are gonna make him in charge of us, but we understand that he's, not, that he's not perfect. But at the time of Luther, Luther said, the, the Pope was saying to the world around him, I, I have this authority because I'm infallible, that I have direct revelation from God. And so what I say happens, period. Uh, and Luther said, and rightly so, no person should ever have that kind of authority because nobody's perfect. Uh, in a human structure, we can certainly create one person to be in charge of everything. That's not a problem. But once that person then says, flips the switch and says, I have this authority because God has placed me here. Oh man, that is a dangerous dangerous, dangerous place to be because you can never fight it, right? There cannot be a revolution under that system. And Luther, I mean, many, many, many people tried to have a revolution in the Roman Catholic Church before Luther and they were all killed because that's what happens. John Huss, you know, was killed at the stake. All these martyrs were killed at the stake because they went against the authority and Martin Luther, they were going to try to kill him too, but he was protected by the, you know, the prince in Germany, and so he wasn't killed. Um, but it's all about authority, and it happens in the church too. It happens in the church, and so we had a revolution in the church, and that was called the Protestant Revolution, the Protestant Reformation. And praise God for the Protestant Reformation because it shook things up, and it and it helped the world and the Christian church to realize that the Pope is not infallible. Um, and I don't know if, they, if the Roman Catholic Church still clings to this or not. Uh, it is not a tenable position. It's a very dangerous position. 
Um, but Jesus says uh, this question to him, well, where does the authority come from? And they don't answer him. He says, well, I'm not going to answer you too. <laughs> I just love Jesus. I mean, I love him anyway, but I mean, I just love this answer from him. Um, anyway, all right, so we're going to move on because we only have one little more section to go, I think. Uh, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So um, basically, this is another uh, parable of Jesus, and, and he's, fight, he's, he's going after the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what he's saying is, you know, you have two sons. One is, um, one is a son who's just obstinate. He says, I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, and the other is uh, the son that says he's going to do it, but then he doesn't do it. You know, the passive-aggressive. You have the obstinate son, and you have the passive-aggressive son. And he says, you have two sons, which one follows the will of the father? And it's like, well, the passive aggressive is not following the will of the father. The obstinate one eventually does follow the will of the father. So he actually is better than the passive aggressive son. And Jesus is pointing out, well, you know, then understand this. Uh, when, when, we, when, when God created the earth and gave the blessing to the, you know, to the leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're being the obstinate son. They're not doing what is what we call, they say they're doing it, right? They say they're loving the world around them. They're making, you know, doing lip service and all that, but they're passive aggressive. And Jesus says, but it's the other people. You know, which one is really serving God? The one that actually does the work that God wants, you know, humbly and behind the scenes are these religious leaders who are being passive aggressive. Uh, and so, you know, they see, the Pharisees see this is directly, you know, to them. Um, Jesus says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are running the kingdom of God. You know, they're at least doing loving, you know, things. It's the Pharisees and Sadducees that are not. They're being passive aggressive. All right, one last section and then we'll move on. Uh, this is now um, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a deep wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time had approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat them, killed one another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls 
on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them, and they looked for a way to arrest them because they were afraid of the crowd, because the people held that he was a prophet. So again, Jesus says, I'm after you, Pharisees and Sadducees. You were called to be a blessing, and you're not doing it. You're being passive-aggressive. And so um, the, the, the vineyard owner has sent the son, and you're going to kill the son too. Um, and that will not go well for you. And they do. So the stage is set. Um, the stage is set. So uh, it's getting late. Uh, thank you for staying with me a little bit long. I'm sorry about that. I waxed a little bit too eloquent, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but, you know, hey, it was fun. We got through it. Uh, so join me in prayer. Dear God, thank you for sending your son to shake things up a bit, uh, to create a revolution. But the revolution wasn't necessarily just a earth revolution. It was a cosmic revolution where you came and created a new kingdom and a new power structure. And Lord, because of that new power structure, we are with power. We have all the rights and privileges of the heir of the kingdom. So thank you for that. This we pray in Jesus' name.